Once, when you wanted to buy a pin, you went to a pin maker. As a boy, they would perhaps have been apprenticed to a pin making master, as part of a men only guild, and would have learned how to craft consistent pins from raw pieces of metal. By 1776, this had begun to change. As Adam Smith observed in The Wealth of Nations, pins were being made in factories. Factory owners had split the pin-making process into discrete steps that could be performed first by unskilled labour and then entirely by machines. By the 1920s, Henry Ford had developed the approach enough for it to be used to manufacture cars, and it soon came to be used for almost every consumer good. By the 1980s, robots were replacing human operators on many tasks. Today, much of the global economy can be seen as a single learning machine, which identifies every repeatable part of the process and directs resources to efficiently automate these steps. Wherever we can see a repeatable step in a process, we're able to design robots to automate them. But some parts of the economy aren't predictable. Fruit pickers, distribution centre workers and recycling plants are presented with a stream of materials that must each be considered anew. Every movement of a hand towards a raspberry or a vacuum gripper onto a package must be analysed and modified. Much of the unautomated part of the economy is like this. The next step in automation is to develop robots that can analyse and optimise tasks in a highly variable process in real time, as well as a human. This will take a combination of physical and digital tools. In some of the world's oldest nuclear plants, now undergoing decommissioning, this process is driving innovations that will shape the future of automation. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins, a member of the SNC-Lavalin Group, to learn about how robots are being used to inspect nuclear power plants, to sort, cut and compress waste, and to take on the most hazardous tasks. Atkins have, over the last four years, been working with clients in the nuclear sector on a series of active demonstrators. These have been practical tests of robotic tools' ability to handle tasks in a highly variable environment, where safety is always at the front of everyone's minds. Christian Pilon developed his skills in robotics, working in the aerospace and packaging industries. In these sectors, robotics is concerned with discrete, repeatable processes. I always like to start with the 3Ds of robotics. So this is the base principle we try and use. It is the dirty, dull and dangerous tasks. So if it's one of these tasks, uh, we think a robot should be doing it. And then we happen to have many of these tasks in nuclear. So this is what's enabling the, the, the business case, the reason for automating or, and, and using robots. Robotics in industry has been driven by replacement of humans on dirty and dull tasks. Danger, the third of Christian's drivers, has been important but not as much so as it is to the nuclear industry. Using safety as, as the main kind of justification for robotics, there's also many cost benefits that can be realized through the use of robotics. So we make things uh, safer, cheaper and, 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 and faster. There's also an element of 
technology advancement that enables the robotics for the nuclear sector right now. If you look at other industries, we see robots being excellent at uh, repeatable tasks. So you look at manufacturing in automotive, in electronics, in packaging, we have what we call high volume, low mix kind of process. So where robots can do a simple task all day long. And this is perfect for, for robotics for, for to enable automation because then you have a low uh, requirement for, for intelligence in the robot, if you will. You can have a very simple system doing the same thing all day long in a very standardized environment. Sellafield in the UK is one of only two plants in the world currently dedicated to decommissioning. The plant went through many iterations, including in the late 20th century, being used to reprocess waste from other reactors. Today, all of the materials at the site must be sorted, packaged safely and stored. Eventually, they will be placed into long-term storage. For some of these materials, long-term means thousands of years in underground storage. Over the next century, much of this material will be held temporarily in a secure and safe location. This process of removing hazardous waste from plants and safely storing it is at the heart of decommissioning. One of the first tasks at any nuclear power plant is to inspect all of the many buildings used in the nuclear sector. For this, Sellafield and Atkins have been making use of Boston Dynamics robot dog Spot and other mobile robotics. These have reduced risks associated with humans inspecting potentially hazardous spaces. And it has saved time and money, as Spot can enter these areas without needing to don a protective suit. If you're going to de decommission, the, the first step is to figure out what you're working with, what do you have. And, and this is where I think is the first opportunity for robotics. So mobile robots, for example, um, can be sent to characterize buildings that have been left for decades. And then you have a better idea of what risk is present. We can send robots with 3D scanners, for example, and cameras, and then properly document exactly what is the current situation so that the planning can, can be done accordingly. It can also be used in a operational phase where you would automate your routine surveys and tasks on the nuclear site and, and make sure you're, you inspect your assets in a repeatable way. As Spot and other mobile robots explore the site, there are some tasks that are already being automated as part of the Active Demonstrator program. Some waste at Sellafield is stored in skips. These are metal boxes containing some radioactive materials and a lot of empty space. They are currently being stored in pools at the site, but they must be moved first to temporary storage and eventually into a permanent site. The space needed to store them for centuries will be hugely expensive. By cutting and repacking them, making better use of space in each skip, these long-term costs will be reduced. If these were identically sized and in identical condition, this would be an easy task for robots. But Sellafield has been in use for decades. It is a place where lessons have been learned, and in its later years, it received radioactive materials from many other sites. Robert Marwood joined Atkins from Sellafield, where he had worked on the decommissioning process. Seeing the potential of early uses of robotics at the facility, he wanted to work more closely on their development and potential deployment beyond the nuclear sector. 
It is, he explains, an ideal environment for testing new approaches to automation. There's a fleet of, of reactors across the UK from 70s and 80s called, called Magnox Power Stations and they produce nuclear fuel and that fuel either has to be disposed of or in the case of the UK we decided to try and recycle that fuel. So Sellafield had a program of, of reprocessing waste so the, the fuel from the Magnox reactors was sent to, to Sellafield where it had to be stored in ponds underwater because that keeps it cool and protects uh, the environment from radiation. Um, so to store the fuel underwater, it was placed in, in skips. The task now is to remove those skips. They are all classified as intermediate level waste, or ILW. Not nuclear fuel, but building surfaces, machinery and other materials from the site that have come into contact with radiation. So I think, I think there's a few drivers. Uh, I mean, the initial one is always around sort of operator dose, safety, things like that. So where you're dealing with intermediate level waste, for example, such as the Magnox skips that are being removed from one of the ponds at Sellafield. The, the doses aren't so intolerable that humans couldn't, say, dive underwater to, to size reduce them in situ or, or, or do them manually. But it's, it's intolerable now to, to expose people necessarily to that level of dose over such a period because there's, you know, over a thousand skips, I believe, and, and to, to just have a manual process doing that just isn't a LARP in today's world. They're essentially a, a hollow box that isn't very efficient for, for storage. So there's a need to, to try and come up with ways of making that long-term storage more efficient because there isn't space, it's very expensive, uh, and that's where size reduction comes in. You have to build a, build a building to store them in and then keep that building running for at least 100 years until we've got uh, an underground storage facility developed. So, yeah, you, you could work out the cost of building a building and then divide it by the number of skips it's going to store and, and you end up in the tens of thousands for, for intermediate level waste for cubic metres. The primary focus is getting the pond empty, so getting the skips out and then it was realised, well, actually we're doing quite well in getting them out and we're running out of storage, we need to come up with a solution for size reducing them, otherwise we're going to stop the, the hazard reduction at the pond. This solution is largely based on typical industrial robotics you would find in a car manufacturing plant. It's uh, industrial robots, laser cutting tools. It's something that in a different industry, I would say is pretty uh, standard technology. It, it's quite new for nuclear because we don't have any robots and there's an extra level of uh, preparation and management when you implement robots on nuclear sites. So that's the challenge for us. The skips will be packaged for safe transportation. When they arrive on site, the packaging is removed, they are placed on a rolling conveyor and clamped to a rotating table. And what happens is, uh, is a small welding robot, uh, like I say, that you'd find on an industrial car uh, factory floor, cuts the, the skip in, into pieces. And the pieces are essentially like how you'd pack a cardboard box. It's each major side. Uh, and the base, so you're cutting a, a skip into five pieces essentially. And another larger robot holds the piece you're cutting, or the side of the, of the skip you're cutting, uh, with a magnetic gripper. So once you've cut it, it, it holds it in place and then packs it into an export skip. So essentially you're, you're cutting a box into, into five sides and then 
packing it into uh, another skip for, for export. The skips come in from the pond. Two of them are cut up and placed in the third skip and sent on. So essentially, for every uh, three skips we bring into facility, we get one skip in size out of it. So 66% size reduction. It's something like £100,000 per metre cubed. £100,000 per metre cubed for ILW for its lifetime, something like that. Uh, it's a bit big. So, you know, for every skip you uh, you manage to pack into another, you're saving, saving tens if not hundreds of thousands of pounds of lifetime cost. In order to cut the skips, the robots must examine each one individually. In the current demonstrator, a human supervisor checks the planned cut paths against the actual skip. The data captured from each skip can then help automate the process, and it can provide insights that inform the broader decommissioning project. And by automating the cutting of the skips with robots, we can also take the, take the opportunity to capture data on these skips. So we can, for example, use a 3D scanner to verify the dimensions of the skips. And we are already finding that where we expected to be only one type of skips, one dimension, we discovered that over time, there had been a few variations created. What what we're doing is laser scanning the skip. That gives you a 3D model of, of the, the real skip, and we can overlay that with a theoretical uh, model, which the cut paths for the laser are, placed, are based upon, and an operator can, can work out if that's within tolerance. The variability of the skips is a, is a problem because they've been in a pond for a long time and they were made over a long period, so there's been undocumented changes to them, things like that. So we actually have, I think, three or more different skips. And if we had done this process manually or if we had uh, waited a longer time, then this would have been a surprise to the, the rest of the process downstream. So we can see that by automating, by using robots, we get much more information and control over the, the process. So the cut paths are planned based on a theoretical perfect skip with tolerances. And then the skip that's imported is scanned to confirm it sits within the envelope of deviations that are allowable. So we haven't designed it based on perfect skips. It's it's designed to tolerate deviations from from drawing and uh, and take that into account. And there's, a, there's the opportunity for the operator to to program in modifications if required to 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 allow for any deviations under sort of a change control process. It's gone from concept design to operations in about four years for a facility that, that size reduces ILW with, with lasers and robots, which is, you know, pretty much an industry first. While the skips are not identical, they are broadly similar. Another type of intermediate level waste at Sellafield that will need its size reduced is glove boxes. These are sealed cases with two glove ports which allow a human to work on hazardous materials without risking exposure. These are much more varied, but automated laser cutting and packaging can still be used. So if Sellafield's confidence you know, and interest in laser cutting then went into looking at how we could do the same for glove boxes because they have the similar, similar sort of constraints on them being a big empty box full of air that isn't very efficient to store. So, um, so there's a desire to understand how they could be size reduced. And 
alpha contaminated waste that you'd find from glove boxes is stored in 200 litre drums so you're trying to put a box into a cylinder essentially so it requires a, a different process to what we were doing with skips part of what we want to learn from from this active demonstrator is understand the, the time it takes to process the glove box because it requires you know some upfront work to disconnect it from where it is in the lab or in the building the windows need to be removed because you can't cut those up with a laser and then it needs to be manually imported into the facility so that takes some operator intervention but then the size reduction process is, is automated again you you, you pre-program a routine based on a, a laser scan again of, of, and you create a model and you can pre-plan the cut paths and then that, that process will, will likely test, take less than a week. The sorting, cutting and packing of the glove boxes may also one day be performed by robots, guided by machine learning. But before they become waste, many of these glove boxes will continue to be used by humans. Another area of automation teleoperations will make it possible for them to perform expert tasks without exposure to risks. The other area of robotics is actually then taking it a step further into the actual glove boxes themselves before they're sent for size reduction, need, need cleaning down, they need things removing from, from inside, um, they need clearing out. Glove box operations are really quite diverse and varied because the process inside them can, can literally be anything um, and the box is put around it for containment to allow you access to either manipulate material or maintain equipment and things like that. It can span floors in some, some instances. The, the most typical one you know, would be the, the size of a, of a desk or two desks um, and then they, they tend to be interlinked so each one would have a, a process and then you'd pass the material through. In some cases, that's not acceptable to, to put an operator's hands into a glove box to do that because some some uh, are in bad condition and you can't necessarily see inside them. There's all sorts of things where, where you might not justify a human putting their, their arms in the glove box. The, the program that Atkins is involved in called Robo, Risk Reduction of Glove Box Operations, Part of that is a study looking at what tasks occur across the site in glove boxes, which are most hazardous, which had most events, which should we go after in terms of either automating them or allowing operators to do them remotely by controlling a robot. Developments in teleoperations made as a part of the ROGO project could have widespread uses at the plant and in other sectors. What's cool about the solution is that all the glove boxes have the same size port. Essentially, there's a standardised glove port, standardised glove design. So the Atkins uh, solution is a Canova robot which fits through those glove ports, so it will fit in any glove box uh, on site. There will be some exceptions depending on what's behind, but in essence, if you can put your arm in, the robot's dexterous enough that you can manipulate it to put put it in as well. So the, the great thing about the solution is there's no modification to the glove box required. You can, if, if a human can fit their arm in, you can fit the robot in. For the waist size reduction active demonstrators, cameras and other sensors have sent information to computers that guide cut paths for the robots and pick and sort through waste. 
but in teleoperations, they're being used with augmented reality tools to provide detailed information to humans for more complex tasks. We're looking at how we can feed back to the, the human what the robot's feeling in terms of weight and force and, and feedback. Um, we're, we're looking at what is currently on the market in terms of uh, robotic hands and tactile sensors and how that can be fed back through gloves into fingers, things like that. Vision systems, so can we have camera systems that give a full field of view as if you're stood next to the glove box? and give you a depth of, of view as well. Um, so one exciting system we've discovered is it is overlaying live 3D scan data. So like 3D VR environment overlaid with real vision. So you kind of get this hybrid view of the real image that you'd see for a camera in 2D, but with the depth perception of the digital image of the 3D environment overlaid with it. Across all of those demonstrators and trials, the robots and other physical tools used are well proven in wider industry. It's the digital tools that are truly transformational. In the two size reduction facilities, with both the glove boxes and the skips, they're laser scanned, so you can create a digital model of them to uh, either program a robot in real time or compare to the existing planned cut paths. As we, as we standardize these processes in the decommissioning, we're also capturing information on how it was done. So for example, when we cut two skips and we put it in a third one, then we know exactly which skips are, are being put in this in this new one. And, and as we go forward, we, we keep a better record of, of what was processed and how and all the process parameters that are important to it. Another example is how we are using robots to sort nuclear waste by using robotics to um, sort through a pile of mixed waste. Not only we reduce the risk to people doing this job, we improve the quality of the um, of the waste. So, so, so we, we reduce, let's say, contamination or uh, between different types of waste. But we also optimize the packaging, the packaging in the containers, and we can um, from there on keep a record of what's being put in which container. We're teaching an algorithm to recognize pieces of waste. And then we also have a robot autonomously picking these objects and then placing them in front of different instruments that will then inform the robot enough to, pick, to, to take a decision on where the, um, uh, how to, to dispose of the, um, the item and how to pack it. We're, we're taking uh, images first, we're acquiring, acquiring data that is then uh, labeled by a, a person and then this data set is used to train a machine learning uh, algorithm to then recognize these objects going forward uh, autonomously. There's many ways that this can be deployed. At, at, at the core of the technology is around the, the vision systems, the, the AI, the intelligence of sorting through the waste, of, of, of recognizing the individual elements and to pick it. But then it can be deployed in many different configurations. Um, how many robots you use, how small or big the robot is, these are elements that are um, relatively easy to, to change and to reconfigure once you have the, the right type of software to, um, to sort the waste. The information captured in the process is being presented in an increasingly sophisticated way. Now operators can be trained and processes developed without risk in a virtual world. 
so on the on the robo work in cycle of boxes part of the development is actually around creating a digital twin of the robot and the glove box environment and the benefits here is you can create scenarios in a virtual world that operators can rehearse with um you can you can develop all that into the instructions and that makes the safety case easier to to approve it's something we've noticed with with UKAA and, and the jet fusion reactor is is they have a full digital twin of the fusion reactor and anything they do with their massive master robots um, is rehearsed and, and practiced in a digital environment which replicates the real world and enables them to practice 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 before they do it in real life so a lot of the digital capability in Atkins uh, in a civil world actually translates across to some of the stuff we're doing in in box robotics in terms of similar skills but different environment. We're partnering with some companies around how we can build in things like haptic feedback into the digital model so it replicates what you'd feel in the real world, things like that. As these tools are refined, they will be used to replace humans and to allow humans to perform dangerous skilled tasks remotely across the nuclear sector. Robots are obviously used in industry to do repeatable, dull, boring tasks. And nuclear's a bit different because the main driver is remote operations, it's to remove people from hazards. The principal drivers of the Alpha Active Demonstrator and the Skips site destruction facility aren't throughput and repeatability to simplify a process. That's part of the design, but the primary driver is to reduce dose to operators, to, to reduce the need for operators to go in and do things. Increased automation in the sector will help bridge a gap in labour supply. A recent report from Atkins, Digital in Nuclear, Our Vision for 2035, found that as skilled workers retire and leave the workforce, they are not being replaced. Robots can be used to bolster the workforce and speed up the process of decommissioning and to more quickly free up real estate for new nuclear power generation. Risk-focused sectors like nuclear make use of a detailed set of regulations and standards. Often, these were developed in an era where human expertise was the only way of performing tasks safely. But now, trained machines can perform many of the same tasks. And yeah, so it's up to us to work with, with the clients, with the regulators, to, to make sure that these types of technologies are uh, being considered in the regulation and that the, our standards are being kept up to date with, with what's available and what's considered safe in, in many other industries. Nuclear engineers work on some of the most large-scale, long-term projects in the world. The costs and the project safety focus have allowed for investment in the development of automation and machine learning. But the tools developed here could one day be used across the economy, from waste recycling facilities, through drug development and into space. If we develop the technology and, and, and the development is made on, on, on these high-value applications, I think the, the robots and the hardware part of it is, is more or less a commodity that will reduce over time. I think if you look at decommissioning, we also see a lot of common interest with the construction industry. If you're sorting to nuclear waste, it, 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 it's actually it is construction waste most of the time. It's just that it's contaminated or, or radioactive. Um, so we can see uh, common themes there. 
I also spoke about the pharmaceutical industry, glove boxes, or I believe they call, they call them isolators in the pharmaceutical industry is, is um, kind of a common topic of interest between the nuclear and, and, and the pharma industry. The need of manipulating um, hazardous materials is not unique to nuclear. And, and in that way, solutions could be very similar. Space robotics is another area where there could be parallel with, with the, robot, the um, nuclear industry. They do a lot of teleoperation with much higher latency uh, challenges than us, but also radiation levels. So it's another area where um, we see common challenges and, and opportunities. In industries where the use of robots is still emerging, applying proven technologies is often the first step. Starting with the, the simpler tasks and, and moving forward progressively, um, I think there's already many applications that, that, that we can do, that we have the, the technology to do right now. I think we should start deploying robots with the, uh, the simplest projects to start with, to, to get these more of these early wins and, and the low-hanging fruits that are then going to open people to robotics and get people used to the idea and to start thinking about where else could we deploy robots. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and Rian Owen. Written and produced by Will North. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the learning machine that directs our efficient operations is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Atkins, a member of the SNC Lavalin Group. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. 